0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com
1: for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com. National editor and Matt, uh, pretty interesting show I think this week. We need to look back on a few of the awards that actually just came out over the last couple days. It's a fun week for baseball, finding out who wins MVP, Cy Young, etc. We're going to get to our All stat cast team, which I think will be pretty interesting. Um, I have a couple of pitchers I want to talk about who maybe deserved better than they got, and of course, Jerry Depoto made a trade. So we have to talk about Jerry. DiPoto Two trades actually, trade. but well, we're right. not going to get into both the trades. So uh, we are we're going to get into a lot of this, but first, I think. A lot of the awards we saw this last week were as expected, right? Aaron Judge, unanimous rookie of the year. Clay Bellinger, excuse me, Cody Bellinger, unanimous rookie of the year. Not a whole lot of surprise there, right? No. I mean, I have my uh, I have my opinions about the down ballot votes in the rookie of the year, but not so much that it's really that big of a deal.
0: Yeah, there there are, there are <laughs> too many issues in the world to get uh, right. concerned about down ballot
1: uh, awards votes. Exactly right. Uh, Corey Kluber wins the American League Cy Young. Totally unsurprising by, you know, 28 first, points, first place votes to two. It was maybe a little more than I thought it would be, but obviously he was going to win. Uh, Max Scherzer crushes the NL Cy Young, 27 first place votes to three. Maybe I thought that would be a little bit closer, uh, but it, it wasn't. And he, he broke the Tom Tango <laughs> Cy Young predictor. He did. The Tom Tango Cy Young predictor usually predicts that a pitcher who has more wins and a lower ERA will bubble up above the pitcher on top of him, and that's what Kershaw should have done, but he didn't. So I don't think that means the predictor was wrong so much as uh, voters are getting smarter. This is great. They don't care about wins anymore. Great trivia great, question for you. You know the last time someone led the league
0: and wins an ERA and did not win the Cy Young?
1: I think I saw this on Twitter, and I want to say it was like Mike Boddicker. That is correct. All Mike Vodiger right. for the 1984 Orioles. Okay. That is certainly a trivia question. Uh, Jose Altuve wins the American League MVP, again, by a little bit more than I would have thought. 27 first-place votes to two for Aaron Judge. Somehow Jose Ramirez got a first-place vote. I don't even know who did that, but, I mean, I like Jose Ramirez. First yeah, place? There was,
0: there was like a, like a, <laughs> a three-day period in the midst of the Indians' win streak when it looked like narrative might carry... Uh, when they, you know, they had that – what was it, 22 games? Uh, I can't even yeah. remember this But When they had that long win streak and Ramirez was playing great and there was just like Indians, Indians fever. And there was like the brief moment where it looked like, you know, the narrative of that streak and Ramirez's like great season um, might carry him to the award. But then, you know, uh, he the Indians fell off a little bit. The streak ended. People were like, oh, yeah, is amazing. Um, Judge also finished really strong. So, um, you know Tuesday winning, it's it's pretty cool.
1: I would have voted for Aaron Judge. Um, and just one more note on the alMVP MVP, Byron Buxton got some down yeah. support, which is if you think about how his season started off, the fact that that's possible, I think is really cool. It says a lot about how voters are starting to like value speed and defense. It's not just about batting average anymore and home runs and he's maybe going to be my MVP choice next season. Yeah, and I'm not a voter, and Mike uh, is a BBWA member, but he did not vote on this, so this wasn't us voting for Buxton. It was uh, not us. Uh, And then the NL MVP, this is the most interesting one, I think. Giancarlo Stanton won by two points, 302 points to 300 points. Joey Votto, they each got 10 first-place votes uh jaccarl stanton got 10 second place votes joe vado got nine second place votes this one it's essentially a tie for all intents and purposes it's a tie stanton comes away with the award he is a perfectly deserving candidate i don't really think you can look at this and say oh he he did not earn it obviously he did um i thought Joey Votto should have won for like nine different reasons. I'm actually a little disappointed that he didn't. Uh, if I had been a voter, I might have been the swing vote that turned this to Joey Votto. So I guess
0: I'm curious, why do you think in your mind clearly Votto was the choice? Because to me, they're basically even, and I could go either way. I don't have a strong feeling on it. Uh, but I'm curious to hear why you think Votto was the, the um, quote-unquote obvious choice.
1: Stanton was a good choice. And I think Vado would have been a great choice because... He leads in pretty much every category I I care about. You know, if you just want to look at uh, our favorite stat, expected weighted on base, well, that's Joey Votto. If you care about traditional stats, he hit, what, 320 with 36 home runs, that's Joey Votto. If you care about defensive metrics, he had, I believe, plus 11 defensive runs saved, tied for first uh, among first basemen. He he really had it all, and he has mastered—I think he's on a Hall of Fame track, right? I I don't think that's super controversial anymore. Maybe it it is. It
0: shouldn't be. It should not be.
1: And this might have been his best season. Right, he masters the strike zone. We're going to get to him in a second because he's on our, our all statcast team. But he masters the strike zone like nobody we've ever seen. He hits for power. He gets on base. I think he had more than a two to one walk to strikeout ratio, which is insane right now. And I don't care that his team was bad. I really, truly do not care about that. I know a lot of people do. Uh, for me, it was Joey Votto, and it wasn't close. The most amazing Joey Votto <laughs> awards
0: fact I think is that he has won an MVP. In fact, I think it was actually like, was it 2010? It was seven years ago. It so was. Like, He's like been a great player for a long time. But somehow, he's never won a Silver
1: Slugger Award. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about the Silver Slugger Award. <laughs> but, I mean,
0: almost, it's almost – it's just sort of like, – it almost feels like, uh, you know – People have been going the other way, not to give it to him. The fact that he has not, in his career, won that award as the best hitting first baseman in the National League is kind of hard to believe.
1: I do want to focus on um, something I found really weird and unexpected about Giancarlo Stanton this year. Um, when Statcast came online in 2015, you'd probably agree that he was sort of the first face of Statcast, right? That first season, the first year we can measure exit velocity. You know, everybody in the world knew he hit the ball hard. But we saw him hitting the ball harder than everybody, and we were actually able to put numbers in context to this. And we're like, "Wow!" And then I guess 2016, I don't know, Seth Lugo is maybe the face of Statcast. And then this year, it's been more of a, a Judge Buxton sort of thing. But when Perdomo. I look, we'll get listen. We will have our weekly Luis Perdomo fun fact later on in the show. But when I look at Stanton. Over the 3 years of Stack Fs, I've found his trends fascinating. The first year, his average exit velocity, 95.9 miles an hour. It was the best in baseball. 387 guys had 100 balls in play. His 95.9 was the best. Last year, 2016, 93.9, so that's down 2 miles an hour. It's still second, still great. It also it also feels like within,
0: you know, we don't have a huge uh Sample size to work with, but that feels like within a standard deviation. It doesn't feel cr- it doesn't feel crazy. Like I agree. Like you might you know you might shuffle a mile per hour or two every year.
1: I agree. But so that was just the second year, and then in 2017, down to 91.9, another two miles an hour. Now, as you as you say, I hesitate to use the word trend. I guess we're only looking at three years of data. There's not a lot here, but for a guy who was really introduced as this is the guy who will hit the ball harder than anybody to drop two miles an hour each year, I find that really interesting. Now you're surely thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute. He hit 59 home runs this year. Certainly, he's doing something right. Um, I think a big part of that was, obviously, he stayed healthy. big part of that is everybody in baseball hit more home runs this year. He also made more contact. His strikeout rate in 2015, 29.9%, then 29.8%. This year, down to 23.6%. So he's simply putting the bat on the ball more often. And this was what I found the most interesting because everybody in baseball is trying to elevate, but not Giancarlo Stanton. His launch angle has dropped each of the three years, uh, 15.5 degrees the first year, 14 degrees the next year, and only 11.1 degrees this year. So he's hitting the ball more often, which is great. He's hitting it more softly, which is kind of weird. And he's hitting it at a lower launch angle. Which is, it's not exactly the recipe you expect from baseball players these days. Like, everything about that is backwards. Everybody's hitting it higher, harder, and with less contact. And here's Stanton doing literally the opposite of all three of those things.
0: That is a fantastic transition to another uh, player related to the NL MVP discussion, uh, who generated a fair amount of discussion last night, and that's Chris Bryant. Um, Chris Bryant, uh, I guess to the surprise of of many, received one first-place MVP vote from our colleague uh, Mark Bowman. Uh, the Atlanta, uh, our Atlanta Braves beat reporter, um, and you know Mark took some some grief about it uh, on social media, as is, uh, happens these days. Um, and he wrote an explainer piece, sort of explaining his logic behind uh, uh, voting for Bryant, giving him credit for his consistency uh, and the fact that you know he sort of his ascent, his 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 best baseball like coincided with the with the Cubs ascent in the second half of the season. Um, but in regards to Bryant, you know. I actually don't think the MVP vote was as crazy as many people think it was for reasons I'll get to in a second. But similar to Stanton, he's one of the only guys, or or, or similar to Stanton and uh, and going against the trend in baseball this year, his launch angle dropped significantly this year, going way down from his 2016 uh, MVP year. In 2016, he won MVP. His average launch angle was 20.9 degrees. This year, 2017, 17 degrees. It's, uh, it's notable because Bryant's season, the arc of how he got to his production was very different, but his overall offensive numbers were basically identical. In 2016, weighted runs create plus was 148. 2017, 146. 2016 is weighted on base,
1: 396. 2017 actually a little higher 399 and i remember pointing this out on twitter at various points during the season like saying hey this this guy i know the cubs aren't doing what you expect them to this guy's having another pretty great season and man people hated that they freaked out about it they're like what are you talking about i'm like Listen, I I wouldn't have put him number one. I think the reasons behind it were totally understandable. Mark did a good job of explaining himself. But, yeah, you're right. His seasons overall were very, very very similar. And I think there's two reasons why uh, he didn't look quite as shiny this year. I think part of it is just there was a lot more competition this year. Like, this is the, the deepest MVP race I think I can remember. Uh, but then also, as I think you're going to get to, some of the top-line numbers are simply different. There were fewer home runs. Who does that these days? <laughs> yeah, 2016, 39 homers. Uh 2017, 29
0: homers, a drop of 10, 10 home runs. But the big difference is he, he walked a lot more. His on base percentage went from 385 to 409. So, you know, he's giving up some power. Um, and it also showed up in his exit velocity. His ex- average exit velocity was down two miles an hour from 89.3 to 87. His hard hit rate was down from uh, 39 point, then hard hit rate being defined as 95 miles per bat a ball with 95 uh, miles per hour or above exit velocity. 39.2 in 2016, 37% in 2017. His barrels, barrels are a hard-hit metric for, you know, sort of an ideal perfectly struck batted ball with a high probability of an extra base hit. He had 54 of those in 2016, 41 in 2017. So he definitely it seems like a little bit similar to that he's maybe sacrificing a little bit in terms of like, you know, go for broke swings, but in exchange, he's getting on base a lot more. And is, you know, early sabermetric adop- adopters can tell you the most important thing a better can do is not make an out. And Bryant did that a lot better this year than he did last year in his MVP season. He got twenty-nine of thirty MVP votes last year. Yeah,
1: I would say the idea that Bryant had somehow a disappointing season is is total garbage. He had another very, very strong season. Um I think just not as strong as some of the competition. That's the way I would put it. Yeah, the, the, the
0: two the two other thoughts yeah. I'll have have on Brian are this is that, you know, the the first place MVP vote stands out. But to me, it's no more out of place than two first place votes for Nolan Arenado, who had like a 128 weighted Rams created plus, 28 percentage points above league average. You know, Bryant's at one at, at 146. Charlie those, Blackman is at one forty one. And those are park adjusted. Those are yeah, park adjusted important. numbers. And you know, Arenado, a fantastic defender, although his and, and I and I don't put a lot of weight in single season defensive metrics, but his his defensive numbers this year were not out of this world. And you know, Arenado's a fine player. I think uh he's a he's a great player, but I think that there's a perception this is one one player I go against the grain. I think there's a perception amongst a lot of analysts and a lot of fans that he is amongst the the inner circle best players in baseball year in and year out. And in my estimation, he's maybe the third, maybe fourth best third baseman in baseball, and probably more in the second tier, outside of the Trout, Altuve, Bryant, you know, to me, Bryce Harper, Clayton
1: Kershaw, group, which is not an insult. By no, it's the way. not. I mean, that makes <laughs> him one of the best players in baseball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you totally on that. As I've always said, I wouldn't have voted him for NL MVP because I don't think he's the team MVP. I thought Charlie Blackman is more valuable this year. Uh, but it's immaterial. They finished fourth and fifth. They're both great players. And I, I think of all the votes, this one was by far the most interesting. Both yeah. at the top and and what happened afterwards.
0: Yeah, for sure. It uh, it, was, and it was. I mean, it was one of the it was one of the closest votes ever. Um, and, you know, we had, I guess, six, seven players or six players to first place votes. Six because Rendon did not get any first place votes, which surprised me. Maybe the most underrated player yeah, in exactly. baseball now. He's also in discussion of uh, best third baseman in the game. One other, Brian, point is that, you know, when I first thought about it, I was like, well, maybe people dinged him because, you know, he hit fewer home runs. And, you know, who in baseball is hitting fewer home runs this year? Well, I went back and looked at the home run leaders from 2016. <laughs> this list and is amazing. I'm looking it, at this now for the first time. <laughs> Two thousand sixteen home run leaders. I looked at the seventeen players who hit more than thirty-five homers, and I guess you know this is regression to the mean at its finest. Basically, all of them
1: hit significantly fewer home runs this year than they did the last think, year. I think I see one guy who hit more home runs, and that's Chris with a K. Davis, who just went up from forty-two to forty-three. Yeah. But everyone I, else dropped. Trumbo
0: 47 to 23. <laughs> Nelson Cruz 43 to 39. And Carnacion. Forty-two to thirty-eight. Dozier forty-two to thirty-four. Arenado forty-one to thirty-seven. Right. Chris Carter
1: forty-one to eight. I mean, you know, big, big poppy are, are retired. Obviously, like yeah. Chris with the C. Davis didn't have a great year. Migi got hurt. Machado got off the slow start. Donaldson got hurt. Matt Kemp got hurt. I, you're right. I mean, a lot of this is regression. You would expect. We had,
0: this. we had players on the other side. You know, who jumped up in in a big way with home run numbers. Obviously, Aaron Judge bursting on the scene and hitting sure. you know fifty-two. Here's and Chris Taylor up, with twenty-five yeah, exactly. or whatever. And but like, uh, so yeah, so. Yes, yes, uh, Bryant dropped uh, 10 homers, but that was not out of line at all with the other home run leaders from 2016. And sort of a good reminder next year that you know, Aaron Judge may only hit 45 home runs, but that's probably kind of to be expected because it's hard to hit 50-plus home runs every year.
1: I'm, I'm torn between, yes, you're 100% right, and also he hit that many home runs while basically not making contact for six straight weeks. So as far as how I'm going to value him heading into next year, I have literally no idea. Let's talk about a trade that happened, but first... Let's take a moment to tell you about our friends over at the Cut Forecast. It's the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut 4 section. They focus on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far into our podcast, you'll really enjoy theirs. It'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode featured the presentation of the Cy Dunn Award, for best position player pitching, the Julio Franco Award for the best old man baseball player, and other prestigious hardware. That sounds like something you're going to search the Cut Forecast C U T number four C A S T in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you consume your podcasts and click subscribe. Can we talk about a trade? Yes. Any uh, you know at this point in the season, anytime a trade happens, it's immediately interesting. I think this was the first trade of the off season, and this is probably not going to be a trade full of names uh, that everybody knows. This the trade was Seattle and Oakland, so Seattle acquires infielder Ryan with an O Healy for reliever Emilio Pagan and a minor league shortstop, Alex Campos. There's probably a significant portion of our listener base who has never heard of any of those three names. Hi, Dad. And I think it's interesting. Like, what I thought of when I saw this trade, it was being pitched as the Ryan Healy trade, right? Ryan Healy had 25 home runs last year, uh, and you know, the, the A's traded him to Seattle, and he's going to be their first baseman. And my immediate thought was the Todd Frazier trade because when that trade happened, everybody thought of it as the Todd Frazier trade. But I remember we were talking about it. We're like, hold on a minute. This is the David Robertson, Tommy Canley trade. And also Todd Frazier happened to be part of it. And that's kind of how I feel about this. Yes, Ryan Healy hit 25 home runs last year. He also had a 302 on base percentage and a 3% walk rate. That comes out in the wash to a league average player. Uh, his 313 expected weighted on base was tied for 209th out of 428 hitters. It's basically middle of the pack, similar to to Jason Hayward, Joe Panik, Jacoby Ellsbury. He's got some pop, got some flaws in his game. The point here is not about Ryan Healy. The guy I'm interested in is the reliever that the A's got, Emilio Pagan. Uh, He was a rookie last year, threw 50 and a third innings, 56 strikeouts and eight walks. That's fantastic. 322 ERA, which is fine. Of the 254 relievers who faced 100 batters, his 241 expected weighted on base, which, remember, counts for strikeouts and walks and quality of contact next lesson lunch angle. Of 254. he was tied for 11th best, like, similar to Tommy Cain, Lee and David Robertson and Brandon Morrow and Chad Green. I'm not saying that he's going to maintain this forever, but this is a guy I'd barely ever heard of, and then I saw where he ranked on our leaderboard, and I was like, this is really interesting. I actually kind of like this for the A's, even though they gave up the power hitter. Well, I love this for the A's because they actually, I mean, Ryan Healy, if there's one thing
0: the A's have, it's players, like, Right. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they've got Chris of the K. Davis. They've got Matt Olson. They've got even Chad Pinder, who can hit dingers. There's people I'm 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 forgetting uh, that 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 they this class of player they they have. This is like the, the A's have sort of in some ways their lineup is reminiscent of like the John Jaha, Jason Giambi, like true Moneyball A's days.
1: I'm, I'm, I think I've said this before. I'm kind of in on the A's for next year, right? Like I really like this trade. I think they've got a lot of really interesting young pitchers. The the guys at the infield corners, I know nobody paid attention to the A's in the second half of the season, but Matt Olson and Matt Chapman for different reasons were fantastic. I think there's a lot of reason to like the A's. I'm not saying they're going to be better than the Astros because they're not, um, but they could be interesting. And what I also liked about this trade, and this was uh, brought up by our friend Dave Cameron at Fangraphs. Could you have imagined just like three years ago after the 2014 season when power was down, home runs were down, somebody trading a young first baseman who could hit for power for a rookie reliever and us thinking that the team that got the reliever made the great deal. It's amazing how quickly things have changed. And I'm,
0: I'm a little surprised by it just because, you know, the the Mariners have had bullpen issues of their own and there is like, you know, I know... Healy's under team control for a few years. He can play a couple positions. So like I, you know, I get like I understand why like a team might value him, but obviously he doesn't he doesn't walk like at all. Um and there are, you know, first base DH types readily available on the market this offseason that could, you know, you wouldn't have to give up talent to go get. I guess that's sort of, you know, your Logan Morrison. I guess they've already had the Logan Morrison experience, but your Lucas Dudas. Um sure. there, there's others that I'm I'm probably forgetting. So just for me, it seems like an odd um, an odd trade for the Mariners well
1: after Danny Valencia and after Yonder Alonso and now Ryan Healy I'm looking forward to I guess the 2020 season when Matt Olson will be playing first base in Seattle because yeah. that seems to be the pipeline before we get to the all stack cast team let's talk a little bit about some pitchers who deserved better and I think with any kind of stat it's always really fun to try to predict who you think might be more valuable next year it does not take any sort of effort to say hey I think Max Scherzer is going to be good next year yes he will But if you look uh, a little bit deeper into the skills, you might be able to find something that isn't readily available just by the top level stats. So what I did here is I compared ERA to expected weighted on base. And that's interesting, I think, because you can have a really great quality of contact and still not really perform well. You can have a bullpen that lets in all your inherited runners. You can have terrible batted ball luck. You can have a defense who just does not help you at all. You can play in a terrible ballpark. There's a lot of reasons you could be a good pitcher and have poor results, right? Like every five and a half ERA does not come equally. Sometimes you're bad, and that's why, and sometimes other things happen. So if I had done this last year, I probably would have called out Anthony Swarzak and his 552 ERA last year. Uh, Kirby Yates had a 532 ERA last year. Shane Green, Aaron Nola, both around five. Last year, they had a very good expected weight on a base and very poor ERA, and all those guys had really good years this year. I'm obviously cherry picking. There are guys I would have called out who didn't have good years this year. Nothing's 100%. But I think this is a really interesting way to just get past results uh, and into skills and into process. So, uh let's talk about a couple of the guys I pulled out. I think Jeff Samarja right, is probably the most obvious one. A 442 ERA, which is not great. A remember uh, for expected weight on basically is 3.14. So, he had a 294 very similar to Robbie Ray, who had a two eighty nine ERA and John Gray three sixty seven ERA. Uh, Samarja increased his strikeouts from twenty percent to twenty four, lowered his walks, had two hundred and five strikeouts and thirty two walks. That is his second best strikeouts to walk rate in the national league. Now, like everybody else on this list, he gave up more home runs because that's just a thing that happened in baseball this year. But when I look at Samarja, I see a guy who had uh, poor outfield defense behind him, an ineffective bullpen, and I think this is a guy who probably deserved better than a four forty two ERA. Yeah,
0: I can't help but think that the um The performance of Denard Spann, who I think was last in our outs above average. Uh, Second last to Kemp, I think. Okay, so
1: we're
0: center fielder in terms of outs above average. uh, Had something to do with this this number because, you know— uh, Samarj is a guy gives up a fair amount of fly balls. a spacious outfield, so you know, without without having gotten you know looked at looked at looked at the film or looked more closely at the batted ball profile,
1: it's a hunch that the uh, that span uh, had had a role there. I, I agree with you, and I want to d- repeat that exact same argument for Marco Estrada. Marco Estrada had a 4.98 ERA a year ago. He made the All Star team. His ERA was like 3.50 or something, but his expected weighted on base of 2.99. Almost identical to the previous year. His strikeouts and walks were the same. If you look at somebody who had a similar expected weight on base this year, Kyle Hendricks, 303 ERA. Madison Baumgartner, 332 ERA. So, how did Marco Estrada get an ERA of nearly five? Well, the Blue Jays' outfield was, to put it kindly, terrible. Kevin Polar took a step back. Uh, Jose Bautista, obviously, is not really going to be an everyday outfielder anymore. They didn't really have a left fielder. If you look at his batting average on balls in play, 2015, it was 202. 2016, it was 202. And last year it was 254. So I do think, you know, a noted fly ball pitcher uh, saw fewer balls landing in gloves and that, you know, Increase the ERA. So, I'm not going to go through everybody on this list here. I have an article coming out about it, but one other guy I do want to touch on just because I love finding a guy that no one's ever heard of, Kevin Shackelford. Have you ever heard of Kevin Shackelford? Uh, I've heard the name, but I can't do okay. anything about it. Kevin Shackelford was a rookie reliever for the Cincinnati Reds, and when you see a 28 year old rookie reliever with a 470 ERA, you probably wouldn't even spend five more seconds investigating it. You think there's nothing here. However, 2.59 expected weight in on base is very similar to Chris Davinsky and Cody Allen, who both had ERAs under three. He struck out 38 guys in his first 30 and two-thirds innings uh, after giving up nine runs in his first seven games, then only seven runs in his final 19 games. They actually acquired him for Jonathan Broxton once upon a time. And, uh, you know, I just—I'm hopeful— that some of these guys on this list, I've also included Kencha Maeda, Jarell Cotton, uh, Mark Melanson, Cam Bedrosian, will have bounce-back seasons next year, and then I can point back to them and then ignore these guys on the list who don't have good seasons next year. That's kind of the way these things work. Uh, let's get to the all stack cast team. Okay. Let's define the all stack cast team. This is not what people think it is. It's not a list—it's it's not the best players in baseball. Now, some of these guys are, but there's no Clayton Kershaw on this team. There's no Mike Trout on this team. This is one player at every position— who has done something extremely interesting from a Statcast point of view? Maybe he's the fastest guy at the position. You know, that best throwing arm, whatever. All the skills we can measure—that's the guys we've named to this team here.
0: And uh, those of you listening might get a sneak preview. Mike is writing this up uh, for the site. Uh, we'll uh, roll out over this weekend. And it's the third year. is the third annual
1: All Statcast team. It is. And when I wrote this up, I think I actually mentioned this in the intro. Is like. The tools we have now as compared to the tools I had when we did this in 2015, I think the first year it was like entirely exit velocity and spin rate. And now it's like, well, we have catch probability. We have sprint speed. We have all – expected weighted had We have all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so I think some of these won't surprise you terribly. Yeah, but- you, you, long-time <laughs> listeners uh, will have heard some of these names before. But uh... Some are obvious, right? For example, at catcher, uh, I thought about Gary Sanchez and his cannon arm, but I went with J.T. Romuto of the Miami Marlins, who I believe is Major League Baseball's most athletic catcher. Uh, and that makes sense. They signed him as an infielder. He was a quarterback in high school, a wrestler and all this. Had a pretty good season with the bat, 332 on base, 451 slugging. He is the fastest catcher in baseball by kind of a lot. His sprint speed is 28.6 feet per second. The major league average is 27. Uh, 28.6 with the next fastest catcher, Wilson Contreras, being 27.4. There were only three catchers, Aaron Austin Barnes being the other, who topped 27 feet per second. So he's not just the fastest catcher by a little bit. He's the fastest catcher by a lot. And I think that's interesting. We've never really been able to measure that before this year. He also has elite pop time. He had a pop time average of 1.89 seconds to second base, tied with Austin Hedges for baseball's best among 58 catchers with 10 stolen bases. You combine those two things, and I see baseball's most athletic catcher. Obvious choice. Obvious choice. Now, first base is a little tougher. I went with Joey Votto, and there's a lot of different ways you could have gone in this direction, right? But I went with Joey Votto— for plate discipline and i know that doesn't necessarily sound like a stack thing but it is because if you look at baseball uh we introduced what we call the detailed strike zone it's not just in the zone or outside the zone you can also select the edges of the zone which is really important and what i really i, I found this number and i thought this was fascinating there were uh, 323 batters who saw at least 300 pitches outside that zone so really the terrible pitches not a single one of those hitters took a swing at fewer of those pitchers than joey Votto. Out of those terrible pitches outside the zone, he went after just 5%. At the other end, Sal Perez went after nearly 40%. This is a big deal. I mean, and you can see it in the outcomes, right? When Joey Votto made contact inside the zone or on the edges, he had 347, 88 miles an hour exit velocity. When he actually made contact with those terrible pitches outside, 0.063 batting average, a 68 mile an hour exit velocity. Controlling the strike zone is maybe the single most important thing you can do. Also, no pitch no hitter in baseball had fewer of his pitches coming from behind in the count. This is the Joey Vado story in a nutshell. Yep. Um it's second base. Second base. Okay. Jose Altuve, and I, I found him interesting because we talked a lot about Altuve versus Judge in the MVP conversation. Altuve, for all of the great things he does, is not a terribly interesting stat cast player. Right? He doesn't really stand out in anything. But, obviously, he's great at a lot of things. What I thought was interesting about him here is that he's really shown this ability to turn speed on when he needs it. So, uh, his sprint speed of 28 feet per second, it's above average, for sure. But it's average not, is 27 point feet per second. Right. It's not elite. The 27 elite, feet per second. The elite okay. guys are up about 30 feet per second. Even just looking at second baseman, he is tied for eighth. He's similar to, like, Ruggie O'Dor, Brian Dozier. Fast, but not crazy fast. But we also saw that when he scored that winning run in ALCS game two, came all the way around from first, he got up to 29.5 feet per second. He turned it on when he needed it. There was also a game in September, and I think we talked about it here at the time. He set a record for the fastest home to first we've ever tracked, 3.33 seconds. He's a righty and he wasn't bunting, which is impressive. So he's got the ability to tap into that speed when he needs it. And he actually gave me an idea that I need to look into when I was writing this. I want to find out. What guys have the the largest difference between their average sprint speed and their maximum sprint speed you know who's who's operating at full capacity and who actually has the ability to add some when they need it? I think that'd be interesting. I don't know the answer to that uh we also had Carlos Correa his middle infield partner
0: as our shortstop sticking with the astros infield the Astros the astros the accolades just they just don't stop you know mVps uh all stack ass team it's really just the award season is uh really a, a cornucopia for them
1: i mean This is because he's got the strongest arm in in baseball as a shortstop. And I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. I never really thought of him that way. Like, I think a strong arm's a shortstop. I think, uh, you know, Didi Gregorius, uh, Brandon Crawford, probably. I always knew he had a good arm. I never really thought of him that way. But, you know, when he was promoted to the bigs in 2015, I looked back at our own scouting report at the time, and the report said he's a rocket arm with accuracy. His arm strength has a scouting grade of 70 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. And it looks like that's paid off. And what's cool about this is that it's actually improved each year. His first year, uh, he was fifth out of thirty-five who had at least ten maximum effort throws. Eighty-six point one miles an hour. That's shortstops, right? Uh, of shortstops, yeah. yes. And then in twenty sixteen, that went up from eighty-six point one to eighty-seven point five, and then in this year, it went from eighty-seven point five to eighty-eight point one, which was the hardest average maximum effort on a first of thirty-six guys who had at least ten throws. That's cool. Like he actually keeps improving in some ways. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, one of my my favorite plays of the postseason, possibly like my personal favorite play of the postseason was that, um, I think it was game two of the ALCS. Uh, It was kind of early in the game, and uh, Brett Gardner hit one into the corner. And, you know, he gets around first and decides he's going to try and go for three. And, you know, Josh Reddick goes and, like, scoops it up and basically does this, like, weird, almost, like, underhand relay throw, but it's an Mm -hmm. absolutely perfect relay throw. And Correa grabs it and just throws an absolute seed um, to third base, I guess it was uh, to Bregman, to get uh, garner by a hair, and it was it was like the most perfectly executed uh, relay throw you can imagine. There was this great camera angle that was like from like the right field, almost like the right field upper deck, where you could see it like a, a full view from behind from behind Reddick.
1: It was like it was it was a, an amazing play. It's it's a shame he hurt himself because he might have been in the AL MVP conversation oh, no, as well. I, I mean, he might have won it.
0: I, I thought he as, as, when he went down like the day up until that point, I thought he was AL MVP.
1: Yeah, and he, and he very well might have been. Um, Third base, Manny Machado. We got a lot of mileage out of this one, I think, this year. Manny Machado did not have a very strong first half. A 296 on base, he hit 230. But at the time, we could see he was hitting the ball really, really hard. At the All Star break, he had the most batted balls, hit 95 miles an hour or more. And as the season ended, he also had the most. He had the most batted balls 250 balls that we qualified as a hard hit ball. That is 20 more than Jose Brea, who was second. Machado hit 478. When he hit the ball 95 miles an hour or more and just 170 under, it's obviously very good to hit the ball hard. And that's why when he was struggling in the first half, we were able to look at it and say, we still got the skill of hitting the ball hard. This is going to turn around at some point. And it did. He was so much better in the second half. I added 30 points of on base and 55 points of slugging. So this one's for you, Manny Machado, the king of hitting the ball hard the most times. Uh, Left field, this is one of my favorite ones. Tommy Pham. I think, I don't know, when do we start talking about Tommy Pham? Like April, maybe May? Uh, yeah, uh,
0: credit to Mike. Mike was uh, all was driving the Tommy, the Tommy Pham bandwagon. I picked, I picked him up. We talked about him on the show, and I went and, like picked him up in fantasy like that day. And although my fantasy team was not very
1: good, Tommy Pham was a huge bright spot. He got some down ballot MVP votes, I think, you know, like eighth or ninth place votes. Yeah,
0: I saw someone someone tweet this today. Basically, they said like the only reason Tommy Pham wasn't NL MVP is because. The Cardinals thought Matt Adams was better than him at left field (laughs) because like he got. I think on basically on a per game basis, if you go by like WAR or whatever, like I think that Tommy Pham led the majors or led the NL because he only played 128 games because he was in the minors at the beginning of the year and
1: didn't get really locked down the job until I think like late May. He's also one of our favorite social media personalities cuz he is hilarious. Um, the top line stats speak for themselves. He hit 306 411 on base, 520 slugging, and 23 home runs. Obviously a great season. But if you look a little deeper at the statcast stats, there's a lot to like about Tommy Pham. If you look at his throwing arm among left fielders, we had 29 left fielders who had 10 max effort throws. His average of 93.7 miles an hour was second only to Starling Marte, 94.1. So that's really good. We had him as a plus six outs above average. He's an above average outfielder. When you look at sprint speed, his was 28.7, which is pretty close to being elite. That was actually the third highest among left fielders. And when you look at all the left fielders who put 100 non-grounders in play, so I'm talking about hitting the ball hard in the air here, there were 47 of them, and only one, Michael Conforto, who split his time in the corners, had a higher production than FAM's 720 weighted at a base. And that's actually what I liked about him in the first place, because even last year he didn't play that much. But when you looked at his production hitting the ball hard in the air, he was fantastic. All he needed was health and opportunity and he got
0: that. And with that, you know, and we're seeing now also the Cardinals I think are planning to put him in center field and move Fowler to left make more use of that uh, of a fam speed. So they're obviously they've finally they've finally fully bought into the uh into the Tommy Fam experience. And I want to make one more point about Fam because I know uh on Joe Posnanski's podcast he and Mike sure have really tried to like take over with the whole Tommy Fam fan club. We and were like, there first. We were there first. <laughs> um so slowly to roll, you know, we appreciate that you no, know, you know, fam is for the people. Everyone can love Tommy Fam, but uh I, really Mike was there first. I want to, you know, it's really for my co-host. I want to give him the credit for uh for for being the, the first one to really—he's really driving the bandwagon. And then Mike and Joe hopped on along I, with a lot of other people. I
1: appreciate that. Um, the next two guys here, I don't imagine you have to guess too hard who our center fielder and right fielder are. Uh, center fielder Byron Buxton. We've talked about him once or 20 times on this show. This is pretty obvious. We're not going to rehash it all, but he's the fastest man in the majors, 30.2 feet per second sprint speed when we broke out outs above average he was number one plus 24 outs he broke his own home to home record with a 13.85 inside the parker tough for me to see anybody breaking that anytime soon unless it's him i think he put to rest the fact that even if he's barely a hitter everything else he brings makes him a solid major leaguer and i still think he's gonna hit yeah
0: there's like there's like this this feeling that like there's like a slight adjustment in there that could unlock
1: you know a, a guy who's actually like Rivals Mike Trout. We've seen it at times, too. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's been there for a minute, um, but if he just gets there consistently. But there's there's nobody, there's nobody no more fun defender for me to watch in baseball than Byron Buxton. Here, here. Ray Field. Do you wonder who Ray Field is going to be? It's Aaron Judge. You may have heard a few things about how hard Aaron Judge hit the ball this year. First in hard-hit percentage. He set a new barrels record, 87 barrels this year. He hit the longest home run of the year, 495 feet. He hit the hardest home run of the year, not the same home run, 121.1 miles an hour. He had four of the five hardest hit balls of the year. He hit four separate 500-foot home runs at the Home Run Derby, including that 513-foot one that basically left the state. He also had the highest expected weighted on base in the three years of Statcast at 446, and one of only 13 outfielders with a throw tracked at 99 miles an hour. He can do it all. This is partially like this list is why I was like, this man is a deserving MVP, obvious Rookie of the Year. Uh, for sure. Starting pitcher, we went with Max Scherzer. With a caveat, which we'll get to in a second, Max Scherzer uh, led all starting pitchers with an elite 242 expected weighted on base that accounts for strikeouts and walks, but also quality of contact. His 34.4% strikeout rate, second only to Chris Sale, 29.2% hard hit rate was ninth best in baseball. He basically he is in a lot of ways the perfect starting pitcher. He throws hard. You can't make contact, and when you do, you don't get good things out of it. Uh, And a part of that was because he's got this extremely high-spin four-seam fastball, 2,504 RPM. That is third behind Verlander and Darvish of 193 guys who threw 200. Max Scherzer, Cy Young Award winner, and possibly on a path to Cooperstown. I don't think it's controversial to say that anymore.
0: Yeah, no, it's not. Although Joe Joe Sheehan wrote a really interesting piece about him. Uh, this week sort of taking that into account and also acknowledging the fact that like you know part of and I love Max Scherzer, Mark, Max Scherzer is my favorite pitcher in baseball to watch pitch um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that but Joe made a good point or I should say an, an interesting point um, sort of comparing him to similar players at similar ages and just sort of acknowledging that well two things one of which is that like part of his his two last two savings are because of Clinton Kershaw's back sure. I guess you know health is a skill so to credit to Scherzer but, you know, we've seen a lot of pitchers, and he compared them to Johan Santana, who, like, were amazing until 31, and then, you know, didn't do much after that. Even Roy Halladay, you know, I obviously don't want to bring him up in light of his, his unfortunate passing, but similar guy who, who at, you know, 32, 33 was, like, on top of the world, and then by, like, 34 was basically out of the game. So pitchers, it's just, like, it's hard to know when they're on a Cooperstown path. On the flip side, a lot of the guys who end up at – In Cooperstown, as pitchers, didn't look like Hall of Famers when they turned 30. Like, you know, Randy Johnson at 30 didn't look like a Hall of Famer, and then he basically was like, you know, the best pitcher in baseball for the next nine years.
1: Well, I'd see. If I am still fortunate enough to be working in baseball in eight years, I will have a vote for the Hall of Fame. And I I can't imagine Max Scherzer will be in by then. He's still got a couple more years ahead of him, and then you have to wait five more years. So I'm really hopeful I will get a chance to cast a vote for Max Scherzer in the Hall of Fame. I think that'll be hopefully cool. the, The other point is that there's all these guys that are sort of still like waiting, you know,
0: Mike Messina. Kurt uh, Schilling, and you certainly say that Max Scherzer hasn't reached what they've done in terms of
1: career value. Then. They should have been in several years yes, ago. Yes, but like,
0: but the point is that they. The, the point is when we talk about who is going to be, not who you think should be, if they're going to make it or not. You know, if 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 the voters have rejected Messina and Schilling and Kevin Brown basically fell off the ballot instantly. Dave Steve, um, someone else should be. You there. know, it doesn't. It doesn't really bode well for someone like Scherzer, unless like the the, the starting the standard for starting pitchers changes dramatically. And maybe it it, it might
1: at some point. But until it does, he has a lot of work to do. I guess maybe I shouldn't say this without thinking more about it. The only slam dunk starting pitcher right now is going to Cooperstown is Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, I think. Well, even, I, mean, even, I, I, I think Verlander probably now is the narrative. But Felix still... like Hernandez, like, kind of depends. Like, he had a great 20s, and the 30s don't look so good. Sabathia will probably have a case. I think like, if Verlander has like two
0: more like, like above average seasons, you know, like he's, he's sure. locked in. He might be in now, but I think that like with two more like you know, three or four win seasons but right, in terms of war, not, you know, right. wins.
1: He's he's in. Yeah. Cranky um, will be in the conversation. But I think for right now, Kershaw is probably the only one who's slam dunk right now. Agreed. Relief pitcher Kenley Jansen, and, you know, there are a lot of great relievers in baseball these days. He led all pitchers with a 198 expected weight on a base. And I really want to put that in context for you because I think this number is cool. We looked at 254 relievers who faced 100 batters. And when you look at number two through number 20 in lowest expected weighted on base, they're kind of tightly bunched around, you know, from a 216 to, to 246. So number two overall had a 216. And Jansen wasn't number one by a little bit. 198. I mean, that is a huge gap. That is absolute dominance. 42.3% strikeout rate, second only to Kimberl. I mean, this is a guy who's had, what, five or six amazing years now. And then he took it to an entirely new level this year.
0: Yeah, he's uh, he's he's something. <laughs> but,
1: and then um, I said, "There's a caveat when it came to starting pitchers." So I guess there's an honorable mention. And if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that whenever we talk about Buxton or Judge, there's always a third man who comes up, and it's not Seth Lugo—not this year. It is Jerome roll please, Luis Perdomo, Matt. Please do the honors. Why is he our honorable mention this year?
0: He is by far the fastest pitcher uh, on the base on the, the base. Fastest has, pitcher by far. He's, he is two pitchers with J.D. Romuto is to catchers. His sprint speed, 29, 29.2 feet per second, is elite. It's faster than, like, Trey Turner. Uh, just, to give you, just to give you a sense uh, of the, the type of speed that Luis Perdomo has, he hit four triples this year. He, the last pitcher who had four triples in a season was Robin Roberts in 1955. The Blue Jays, as a team... Hit five doubles this year. Luis Perdomo
1: had four, and he came by, He comes by and honestly with that elite speed. All right. Well, I'm glad we were able to find a way to get, <laughs> to get Luis Perdomo on this team. So that is the 2017 All-StackCast team, uh, and that'll be an article up on the site soon. So thanks for listening. We'll take next week off for the holiday. We'll be back in December to gear up for the winter meetings, I guess, and hopefully a lot of trade's coming soon. So that is the MLB.com StackCast podcast for this week. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.